Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Father, once more, we ask for your help. Prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah says, this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This word should make us tremble here this morning because these are hard words spoken to your church, not to the unbelieving world, to the church. So give us ears to hear, as it says at the end of each of these letters to the churches, give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to heed what you tell us. Help me now. I need your help. I'm wholly inadequate to the task of proclaiming your word, and so I ask for your spirit to help me and to help all of us in this room hear what the spirit is saying. In Jesus' name. Well, tolerance is a good word. Used to be a good word anyway. Used to be a virtue. But I think its meaning has been subtly shifting over the last 20 years or so. The demand for tolerance of all kinds of sinful behaviors has now grown to be equivalent of acceptance. And even beyond that, to celebration. Tolerance is not enough anymore. Tolerance is seen, tolerance is, is that they only see, the world only sees us being tolerant if we accept and celebrate. So under the guise of tolerance, many churches and even some Christians have changed their whole moral value system. And in reality, what we're being asked to tolerate in many cases are things that God says he will judge. So I'm going to call this kind of tolerance sin. There is a good tolerance, there still is a good tolerance, but this kind of tolerance that we see in this passage is sin. Tolerance becomes sin when it becomes untethered from truth, disconnected from truth. When our commitment to tolerance, usually in the name of love, means that we no longer have the fortitude to speak the truth to each other. And that seems to be what was happening in Thyatira. So let me set the scene a little bit here. The trade guilds, we've heard about them before. And the trade guilds were big in, in almost all Roman cities, but seemed to be especially big in Thyatira. There was a military garrison there, so lots of trades took place to support the military, whether it was bronze smithing or shoemaking or clothing makers or whatever. The guilds were like, kind of like unions are today. And uh, you didn't have to belong to a guild to make a living, but boy, you know, it's like, like being a non-union company competing with in a union business, right? If you really want to succeed, you probably ought to belong to one of these guilds. Now, each guild had a patron god that was often celebrated and worshipped with great feasts. There would be sacrifices to these gods, and that would be part of the feast. So these guilds were part of both the business and the social life of the community. And they were important for your employment. In addition, 
There was the usual imperial cult of the emperor, worshiping the emperor. So if a Christian refused to participate in any of this stuff, it could mean both social ostracism and difficulty even making enough to support your family. So as with each of the letters, this letter is structured like most of the others. So we're kind of familiar with this structure. It begins with a description of the one who's writing it, Jesus. And then it praises the church for what it's doing well. And then there's rebuke for what's going off track and an exhortation of how to get back on track. All that gets followed by promises to those who hear and heed what the Spirit is saying. So that's kind of the general structure of each one of these letters. And Jesus is calling us in this particular letter and in most of them to faithfully hold fast. So we just heard this song, hold me fast. He's going to hold us, but he's exhorting us, believers, the church, to hold fast here. So we're going to look at this passage under three points. First, the Jesus who knows his church. We'll look at who he is and what he knows. Second, the trap of tolerance, the trap this church was falling into. And then third, Jesus gives a word of encouragement to the remnant that, so that they can avoid that trap. And along the way, I'll try to draw this into our situation today. Because remember, these are letters to churches, not just the church in Thyatira 2,000 years ago. So this is meant for all, all, all the churches to hear in the first century and for us to hear today. All right, so first, let's take the Jesus who knows his church, verses 18 and 19. So let's just look at Jesus himself first as he's presented to us in verse 18. Remember that Jesus addresses the angel of each church with a description of himself that's mostly taken from chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. And it, Jesus kind of tailors each description of himself particularly to that church, something about his character and glory that that church needs to hear. So notice what Jesus, that Jesus calls himself here, the Son of God. So if you go back to chapter 1 and you read the, the description that John writes of this vision of Jesus that he has in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 1, you'll see, you'll see the term Son of Man, not Son of God. So Jesus makes a change here. And I think his purpose is that he's wanting to emphasize to this church his deity. This is God speaking. He's going to have some hard things to say, and they should make no mistake about who it is that's addressing them. This is God himself. And he's, so then we see these eyes of flaming fire in verse 14. Eyes of flaming fire. So fire penetrates. He sees down to the depths of people's hearts. He sees the deep things that are going on in this church, the things people may think they're hiding. They pierce right through and they see and judge everything. And then he's got feet like burnished bronze. That speaks of firmness, steadfastness. The picture I had in my mind as I was working on this was Imagine 
you're having you have a bronze statue in a park and you don't like it so you're going to kick this dude over you know and you you walk up to the statue and you're going to kick it in the shins well if if the legs are made of bronze you're more likely to bruise or break your foot than you are to knock that statue down so that just firmness steadfastness of truth So the image you should have here is that Jesus, in all of his divine glory as God, sees every sin, every thought, every deed, and it's judged according to his truth. Not our truth, not the world's varying version of truth, but his immovable, unchangeable truth. Now this is especially relevant to us in an age when truth is seen as something that's moldable, changeable with the times, even, even something that doesn't even exist in any absolute sense. How many, you've heard the phrase, there is no such thing as absolute truth, right? We don't believe that. Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So he is the truth. And his truth never changes or conforms to the latest opinions of social media pundits. This is the Jesus that's dictating this letter to Thyatira. So I just want to get, get that image of Jesus in your minds. Now, let's look at what Jesus knows about this church. And he begins with good works in verse 19. What are these works? Well, he lists them for us. Love, faith, service, patient endurance. Not only do they have these works, but they're doing them more and better now than they did at first. They're growing in these good works. So everything's great in this church, right? They're growing, they're serving, they're loving, they're patiently enduring through trials, they have some kind of faith. And then we come to verse 20, which begins with the word, but. It's one of those contrasting conjunctions, right? Just when we think this is a great church and we should all join it, the tone changes. So that leads to our second point. Jesus has a problem with this church that's excelling in these good works. He says they've fallen into the trap of tolerance. I'm calling it the trap of tolerance. He says in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. So let me stop right there for just a moment. I want to make a couple of observations. First, they're tolerating. They're putting up with. They're giving platform to this Jezebel. Now the question comes up, is this a literal woman named Jezebel or is this just some general term uh, symbolically representing a heretical group that's within this church? Commentators uh, are divided on that, but I think it was an actual woman, though I don't know if her name was re really Jezebel or not, but I think it was an actual woman who was spreading this false teaching in the church and gaining a lot of followers. If you know your Old Testament, you might have an idea who Jezebel is. But let me just read you from 1 Kings 16. So Jezebel was a wicked, the wicked wife of Israel's King Ahab. 
Now, Ahab was wicked enough by himself, but then he got married. Well, let me, let me read you what 1 Kings 16 says. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now it says something about the family you're marrying into when your father-in-law has the name of a pagan god as part of his name. So Jezebel deceived an already evil king Ahab to dive deep into idolatry and to lead the nation of Israel that way as well. And we can see in what this woman is doing in Thyatira, she's doing something very similar. So we can see why John probably chose this name, even if that's not her real name. It would call to mind to these original readers in the first century who know their Old Testament, oh, that's what we're talking about here. Second thing I want you to notice is that she calls herself a prophetess. She calls herself. It doesn't seem that the church has conferred that title on her or that any ecclesiological body has, has conferred that title. She calls herself that. It gives her status. It gives her a powerful voice. Now, I don't know what your view is on the gift of prophecy or the office of a prophet in today's church, but I think we can all agree that this church in the first century, that this office of prophet was still functioning. So this gave her an authority that she needed. What she was teaching well, get this, what she's teaching, this sexual immorality and eating, participating in these idolatrous feasts, what she's teaching is being passed off as directly from God. She's saying, God told me to tell you this. Now, I need to pause here for just a moment and make some application because there are a lot of self-proclaimed prophets out there today so I want you to hear this, South City's church. Don't be impressed by these people. You're going to hear some incredible prophecies, especially in this political season. We heard them four years ago. We're going to hear them again. Weigh everything. Test everything. Test it by the word of God. Be, be very wary of self-proclaimed prophets and apostles. You hear that term too, apostles. Let's be wary. All right, let's continue on and look at what this Jezebel was doing that was so bad. Jesus says that she's teaching and seducing. So she's teaching in such a way that is seducing or drawing away many in the church to follow after her. And specifically, she's teaching and seducing believers, that's what I think Jesus means when he says, my servants, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we've encountered this kind of teaching already. In fact, last week we saw in the church at Pergamum, it was called the error of Balaam. 
or the teaching of the Nicolaitans, just pulling, just trying to pull God's people away from the worship of God and toward the worship of idols. The Ephesian church encountered this heresy and was successfully resisting it. But in Thyatira, they seem to have decided that tolerance is more important than sound doctrine. It's amazing how many times in the Bible we see idolatry and sexual immorality linked together. One almost inevitably leads to the other. And when a church begins to tolerate such false teaching and doctrine in their midst, it leads to syncretism. Now, Dave used that word last week. Anybody know what it means, syncretism? For the, for the sake of you kids, I'll try to give a simple definition here. It's when people try to mix the worship of the true God with the worship of an idol. That, that's probably the simplest way I know to put it. When you mix the worship of true God, try to synchronize the worship of a true God with the worship of an idol. When your worship gets messed up, your behavior is going to get messed up as well. Holiness will begin to look like prudish legalism. Sexual purity will become something to be mocked and ridiculed. Compromises will be made in both your doctrine and your practice. And then I want you to just notice that the love that Jesus praises them for. He lists that first among the strengths of this church. Remember Ephesus a few weeks ago? What happened to Ephesus over time? They lost their first love, didn't they? And they needed correction. But I wonder if Thyatira has a kind of love that leads to this tolerance that's untethered or disconnected from truth. Remember those feet of burnished bronze Jesus talked about a couple verses ago, representing unbending, unchanging truth? But sometimes, if we really love people, we can be tempted to get wishy-washy about the truth. Personal relationships become more important than the truth. So I wonder if, with all the good things that Jesus praises Thyatira for, one of their greatest strengths is also one of their greatest weaknesses. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But it's a question worth asking, I think. The Ephesian church erred in the direction of truth and lost love for God and others in the process. But Thyatira seems to have gone the other direction and lost truth and is tolerating error that's leading many in the church deep into sin. But they might answer, if you were a Thyatiran, but this tolerance is all in the name of being loving. We don't want to be so judgmental and condemning. It's uncomfortable to call out sin. And who's to say what's sinful anyway? We each need to live our own truth. Besides, our city is full of idolatry. And by following the prophetess Jezebel, we can keep our standing in the community. And we can join our neighbors in their celebrations. That's loving our neighbors, right? See how this can get twisted. We, don't, we won't really worship those gods in our hearts. We won't really do that inside. We'll, we'll just kind of keep up an outward appearance. But we don't want our neighbors to think that we're weird, boring prudes. 
So if that kind of sounds like some of the thinking and things you hear in our culture today, then I think Jesus' words to Thyatira are really relevant to us right here today. Let's move on. Verses 21 to 23, Jesus issues a warning to Jezebel and her followers. A warning of impending judgment. Now, now wait a minute. I thought that church escaped judgment. Well, not exactly. It does escape condemnation, ultimate condemnation, but I don't think it's a coincidence that before we get to all the chapters on God's judgment on the world that we're going to see in chapters 6 through 20, chapters 2 and 3 give us a judgment that begins with God's people. This came up in the Revelation Sunday School class this morning. So if you're there, you already got this point. But for the rest of you that weren't there, listen to 1 Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So it's no accident that Judgment for the church comes at the beginning of the book of Revelation before judgment for the rest of the world. All right, what is Jesus' remedy for this church? Well, notice, first of all, the call to repentance. Jesus says he's given Jezebel time to repent, and and I think by implication, that whole church, time to repent. She hasn't done it. And instead, it's gotten worse. So he threatens to throw this false teacher on a sickbed and her followers into great tribulation. He says he'll strike her children. And again, I think that's referring to the followers. To strike her children dead. So sickness, even death, may be the result. He's not joking around here. And then I want you to look at the reason he's being so harsh. So verse, the second half of verse 23. He gives the, this is a reason clause, okay? Why, why is he being this hard on them? So that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Remember those eyes of flaming fire? He's searching here, mind and heart. And we'll give to each of you according to your works. Now, we don't have time today to unpack all that Jesus means by judging according to our works. Um, that's going to that's gonna come up later in chapter 20 at the judgment seat. So come on back in a few months for chapter 20. But I'll just say that Jesus calls his church to a kind of faith that works itself out in love, a f- A faith that's disconnected from your behavior is not a biblical faith. If it doesn't make a difference in your life, it's not real faith. But I want you to see something that's not quite as evident in the English translation. So take a look at the second half of verse 23, and you'll see that little word, he, I am he, that all the churches will know that I am he. That word isn't in the original Greek. So literally, this is what Jesus is saying. He's going to discipline Jezebel and her followers so that all the churches will know that 
I am who searches hearts and minds. Now, where have we heard that before? God says his name is I am in Exodus 3.14. I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you, he says to Moses. And then this really always fascinated me. When Jesus is arrested in the garden in John chapter 18, they, so this crowd of people is coming to arrest Jesus. Temple guards, Pharisees, scribes, Judas, they're all coming to arrest Jesus. Some of them are armed. And Jesus says to them, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. To which he replies, I am. Now, I know your English Bibles put in the word he after that, but it's not there in the Greek. It's not there. And do you remember what happens when he says that? They all fall down. <laughs> I, I can just imagine this group of maybe 50, 60 people coming to arrest Jesus, bearing swords and armor, and, and he says, I am, and they all just fall down. Now, that's power in the name. That's power in the name. Listen, what Jesus is saying here is the reason I'm going to be so hard on this church and judge this false teaching, not just in this church, but in all churches, is because my name is at stake. My name is at stake. All right, let's move on. Third point. In verse 24, the tone shifts back again, and Jesus is going to encourage the little remnant that hasn't fallen into this trap of tolerance. So notice, Jesus called, first of all, Jesus calls this teaching the deep things of Satan. I found that interesting. The deep things of Satan. So when we tolerate false teaching and ungodly practices, when we just tolerate it, we're diving into the deep things of Satan. When, when you don't go along with these things, when you're part of this little remnant he's addressing here, then they're going to think that you're the one who's evil, unloving, bigoted, intolerant. But idolatry and sexual immorality are deep darkness. His word to this faithful remnant is this, hold fast what you have until I come. So it's hard to swim upstream when even some churches and respected church leaders are compromising and going along with the darkness. It's hard. Jesus knows this, so he doesn't lay any other burden on them. He's not asking them to fix their church. He's just saying, hold fast to the truth. And he reinforces it in verse 26 by defining what he means by conquering. He says it's this, keeping his works until the end. And that's what conquering is. Just keep being faithful to me and what I'm commanding you to do. And then he promises two rewards to this little faithful remnant, authority and intimacy with him. 
So let's look at each of those in turn. So first, authority. They may be outnumbered in the culture and in their church, but one day, if they keep holding fast, they're going to rule over nations. The wording of the promise in verses 26 to 27 is right out of Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So let me read you Psalm 2, 8 and 9, and you can compare with what you see in your Bibles there. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations your inheritance, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament says, rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Only, listen, the words in Psalm chapter 2 are addressed by the Father to the Son. And here, Jesus is, it's the Son addressing the church. Now, Jesus acknowledges that the that Psalm 2 is about the Father addressing the Son because he says in the second half of verse 27 in our passage here, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So when he quotes Psalm 2 here, he's acknowledging, I've received this authority from my Father, and now I'm going to share it with you if you hold fast. So hold fast, and I will share my authority with you. So the promise here is that we get to share in that ruling authority with him in the new heavens and new earth. And then the second promise he gives is that he will give them the morning star. Commentators seem to be all over the map on what that means. In fact, I read one commentary that had six different interpretations of what that could mean, including that Lucifer was called the morning star in the Old Testament. I'm going, how, how does Lucifer fit in here? I'll just say that I think there's two New, Pat, New Testament passages that clearly assign this phrase to Jesus. One is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. It says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until, listen, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And if that's not clear enough, Dave read this one right at the start of the service, Revelation 22:16. So just in the same book here. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, "I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star." So I think all Jesus is saying in here is, "I'm going to give you more of myself. That's your reward. More of me." What an incredible prompt. Don't you want that? Don't you want more of Jesus? And then he closes this whole text with the same thing he closes all these letters with, the repeated announcement that all the churches should hear what the Spirit is saying to this church. Because it may apply to any other church that exists at any other time in history from the first century until today, including us. So let me just kind of draw this to a close by asking us to take a look at ourselves. Let me review first where we've come. We've seen that Jesus stands as a rightful judge even over his church. We've seen the good things Thyatira is doing. It's not all bad. But we've also seen that what's bad is really, really bad. And it's getting worse. 
They've fallen into the trap of tolerating sin and false teaching, and that's leading many of them into deep darkness. They've unhitched tolerance from truth, and the only remedy is repentance. And finally, we've seen that like most all the churches, God still has a holy remnant within that church that's holding fast to the truth, that isn't compromising. Okay, so let's do some examination of our church and our own personal lives in light of this. First, let's learn from what Thyatira was getting right. Is our love, faith, service, and patient endurance growing? Is it increasing? Is it more now than it was? So South, the South Campus of Bethlehem was planted in 2006. Year, we're into year 18 here. Are we further along in these things now than we were when we first started? And don't just look at our church as if it's an organization distinct from yourself. Don't look at it as the building or some, some organization or even the elders. It's all of us. A church is nothing more than the sum total of the believers that make it up. So if you and I aren't growing in this stuff personally, our church is not going to grow in this. But what about the bad stuff? You might be tempted to say, well, there's no Jezebel in our midst. Well, maybe not. But are we tempted to tolerate false doctrine for the sake of being loving? Are we tempted to be open and affirming of the sexual revolution going on all around us in the name of love? Let me make us even a little more uncomfortable. Where are you most tempted to make compromises? Where am I most tempted to make compromises? Little ones at first. Are we so sure that there's no idolatry in our hearts? One of the biggest idols in our culture today, I think, is the worship of self. The self has become maybe the biggest idol. Are you worshiping at this altar? Am I? Are you or am I more interested in being our authentic self or in denying ourselves? Which of those phrases comes from Scripture? And do we think there's no sexual immorality among us? Listen, Today's Jezebels don't need to stand in the pulpit of our churches or come to our Bible studies. They can come to us on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And how about in our thought life where no one can see? Have my thoughts wandered to things that don't honor God? This is sensitive, I know. But Jesus isn't holding out condemnation here. He's warning but he's still offering repentance. Jesus died to redeem us from sins like this, so turn to him. If you've never received Christ, turn to him. Or if you're a believer and you feel yourself getting dragged in this direction, turn to him. I'm not saying it's easy. Sin is powerful. But let's be a church that helps each other stay on the path of holiness. In fact, we say that when we become members of this body, that we want to be accountable to each other. And that means we need to speak truth to each other, even sometimes hard things. So we can tolerate a lot of vari variants of opinions in this church about a lot of secondary things. 
But let's not be a church that tolerates false teaching or false teachers. And we're seeing far too much of that in the church today, right? Pastors who have failed morally after building huge mega churches, a couple of ones just in the last few weeks, just in the last couple of weeks. There's hiding abuse in the church and covering it up with pathetic ideas of what male leadership in the home and church is supposed to look like. And how, how many have we seen who hold to biblical truth until a friend or a loved one comes out as gay? Now, that's a hard situation, I know. But suddenly, all, their whole theology changes. Their whole moral value system changes. They don't hold fast. Real love holds fast to Jesus, who is the truth. And real love has great tolerance for struggling sinners, but it does not tolerate those who lead others astray. So instead, let's be a church that holds fast until Jesus comes. And I know it's getting harder in our culture. We can expect that. You may be pressed to compromise at your workplace. You may get tired of being called a bigot, right-wing extremist, when you're just believing what God says in his word. And I'm just encouraging you, Jesus is encouraging you, hold fast. When Jesus comes back, you're going to want to be among that little remnant that's found holding fast to his truth, not among those who are falling into the trap of tolerance. Let me pray. The trap is subtle, Lord. It never comes blatantly. It never comes obviously. This church in Thyatira, to be this deep into it, I don't think that happened overnight. It happened along the way with little compromises at first. And pretty soon, they're accepting, tolerating, maybe even celebrating, obviously celebrating if they're going to these feasts. They're, they're celebrating all kinds of sin and still claiming to follow you. So Lord, search out our hearts with those eyes of flaming fire. Search out my heart and root out any idolatry there. Trusting in, believing in anything or anything, any idol that I might want to put alongside you and mix with my worship of you. Just have a little bit of me in there alongside you. Lord, I want to die to myself and live for you and I want that for every person in this room. Make us a church like that. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.